this week, as I was reading through Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, I was, I came, the words came to my mind, it's only words, but words matter. And perhaps that will come out clearly as we read this passage in just a moment. Most of you, or many of you, know that I grew up in the Fiji Islands uh, several years of my life, and as an adult, lived there a long time. There's, a, there's about a, there's several hundred islands composed in the Fiji Islands, inhabited and uninhabited. And one of those, the third largest, you can see in the top right-hand corner, is named Taviuni. Taviuni is called the Garden Island, and it's a beautiful, it's an absolutely gorgeous island, and I could talk to you a lot about it, but I won't. But at its highest peak, there is a unique flower. It's only found in Fiji, from what I understand. It. This one place is called, called the Tangimaldia. Tangimaldia. And it's 2,500 feet up on the mountain, and this only place, and so a lot of tourists go there just to see this particular flower. But it's also known as a place where the International Dateline cuts through Fiji, the 180th uh, longitude. Now you can see that line there cuts through the island of uh, Taviuni. And so the day begins at that point there. And so there's a sign. You can go, go there and you can stand where this young lady is standing. She's standing where supposedly the 180th longitude is. And so if you can see closely on one side it says today and on the other side it says yesterday. If you go to the east you're going to go into yesterday and if you're on the west of that line you're in today. Uh, that sign wasn't there when, when I visited. This sign was there. And you can stand there where you can have a foot in each day. And it took me a little while to see this, but the sign says, I guess we get our words mixed up, yesterday and tomorrow. Well, where's today? <laughs> and I remember sitting there and, you know, standing there getting your picture taken. I have a foot in each day. I'm in yesterday and I'm in tomorrow. And it's like, oh, no, that's, that doesn't work. You know, so they fix the sign. Someone else saw that too and said, you know, this is today and this is tomorrow. Yesterday. So yeah, it's hard to, hard to get all that straight. And so I, I use this illustration to say in our Christian walk, there's this phrase that we're going to read in a minute, in the flesh or in the carnal nature or in the sinful nature and in the spirit. And I think a lot of us kind of want to live our lives standing on that, on an imaginary line, having one foot in the spirit and one foot in the flesh. And the reality of it, Paul says, that can't be done. You're either in one or the other. And so if we pick up where we left off last week in the end of verse 4, all the way through verse 11, which we'll not cover today, Paul is, is describing these two different states. And it's not until verse 12 that he's going to actually tell us what to do with those states. 
And so we have to wait. But we're going to look at what these two different places are. And let's, let's read the passage together. And this is picking up at the end of verse 4 where it says, Who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. All right, you get those two things. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. I don't know about you. Maybe this is my years living in a different culture. When I read something, I think, what does someone hear the first time they hear that? What, what are they hearing, even if they've heard it a lot of times, what, what's going on in people's minds, especially when we have all these words and phrases we don't use in everyday language. I, I, did you use sinful nature this week or live according to the Spirit? Maybe you, you've used that some, I don't know. But it's really not our everyday language. And so depending on your translation, you'll have living according to the sinful nature or the carnal nature or the flesh is uh, some of the older translations. And so the whole text comes across as religious. I don't know how, I don't know how to explain this exactly, but to me, or I'll, just, I'll just let you know how I'm thinking. It comes across as a very religious text. It perhaps for some is a, like theological philosophy. That's something I kind of thought of as I read through this. And it doesn't help when preachers in trying to explain this text, they, they say things like the words like sanctification and regeneration and carnal nature in our deprived state, all depraved state, not and deprived too, whatever. You know, use all these terms that we like, oh, I'm not really sure what, what's being said here. And further, the word spirit can be a human spirit or it can be God's spirit. It can be the Holy Spirit. And sometimes that's not clear which it is, so some translations will capitalize the S when they think it's the Holy Spirit. Uh, not all are in agreement. And so I think the temptation for some Christians as we read through this is just kind of skip over it quickly and go to something we can understand better. I think some preachers do the same thing. I'm tempted just to touch on it and then go on somewhere else because it's kind of complicated. And some of you who are listening as we're reading through that went to your dream world and you're like, I don't know. And you went off to back to Fiji and you were thinking about the parallel and the tropics and the papayas growing on and as we read through that. That's our, where we go. So to, to begin this, I want to give you four, four helps Four helps with a difficult passage. If you're a new Christian, or if you're someone like me, I struggle with these difficult passages. And you read them and go, ah, I don't know what it says. I'm going to give you four helps that may, may help you, not only on this passage, but other passages that you, as you read the scriptures. Number one, don't dismiss a difficult passage. Don't just say, well, whatever. Uh, pray about it, read Try to think about it a little. 
Later on, as you're reading through the scripture, you might come to something else that gives you light in a more difficult scripture. And, and those of you who have read the Bible for years and studied it know, as you continue to read it, you go, oh, I, I, I'm seeing what that means now. So don't just dismiss it. Think about it, read it, read it, and, and you might get some, you'll get some clarity. Number two, remember that what you are reading is God's word. And know there's something in this passage will help, that will help you mature as a Christian. And so honor it. Honor what you're reading. Don't be dismissive. Don't just say whatever. Because this is God's word. So hold it up and honor it. And know there's something in even a difficult passage that can help you. A third thing, look at it from a broad perspective without going into the details. In other words, this flesh, spirit, this overriding, you can say, what's the overriding message? Uh, that, and the overriding message that probably we all get as we read this is we need to live spirit-centered lives according to the spirit and not centered our life in the flesh or the carnal nature or the sinful nature. And we read that, you know, in verse 6, we see that very clearly as he says, if you live this way, it's good, and if you live this way, it's bad. I mean, we can get that very easily. Even, even uh, my, my grandchildren, 10, 12 years old, can understand that. And so as you read something like this and you think about it, maybe just write out a prayer or say a simple prayer. And I just wrote this one out. When I read this passage, I, I, I just I thought this prayer, Lord, I don't understand fully what this passage is saying but I ask that you mature me so that I have a mind controlled by the spirit where there is life and peace and not by the mind of the sinful man that is death when I react in ways that can be termed as death help me realize in that moment that my mind is of the sinful man and lead me to change those actions so that I can walk in life and peace I think everyone can understand that, right? And so as we get into some details here and dig into it a little more, and, and some people, why do you do that? Well, over in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter's writing, and, and he says in verse 15, Bear in mind our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote, uh, wrote in his letters, Oh, let me read. I, my vision went off there. Who wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. Then listen carefully. His later letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Yeah, sometimes the scripture is hard to understand. And so it's difficult and we can dig into it and we can find it and we can discover really some wonderful things. And so that leads me to the fourth point. Be patient with a preacher who is trying hard to explain a difficult passage in a simple way. We're looking at God's work in this, in this section here. And we're seeing the work of God that he accomplished through Christ. And we saw back in verse 4 there were two things. I'm just going to touch on them very briefly because we talked about them briefly last week. There's two things that God's work did through Christ. And the first, it says he condemned sin. God is perfect in his judgment. 
When God makes a judgment, it's a perfect judgment. And justice had to be pronounced. It had to be carried out. A sentence had to be carried out when this law was broken. And I know I get a lot of people say, well, why? Why? Well, the same reason that you want justice. You want justice, and you say, I demand justice. Well, who are you? Are you God? No, you were created by God in His image, and you have that same desire to see things that are done right and fair. And God's the ultimate judge, the ultimate in fairness. You know, it would be frightening to stand before a judge who is unjust in the human court. Someone that you think has it against you as you stand. He might let an innocent man be condemned. Or he might let a guilty person go. And we'd all say, that's not fair. And so God says, I am fair, I am just, and when things need to be righted, that's justice. When things need to be put in the balance and, and made right, I'm going to do it in the right way. And so it says God in his justice condemned, there has to be condemnation here, not Jesus, not you, but sin. I find that interesting. He condemned, condemned sin using the sacrifice of Jesus through his body, what he did. But he didn't condemn Jesus. He condemned the sin that he was bearing. The judgment was against sin. Second, this condemnation was for a particular purpose. And Paul states it this way, so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. And some interpret that in this way. They say, man could not keep God's law. And we all know that. You can't keep God's law perfectly. And so when, he, when a person comes into Christ, he is now given the power of the Holy Spirit to keep the law. Now a Christian has the ability, the power, to meet up, to live up to the righteous requirements to the law. And, I, and I, I, Julie and I made a trip down to visit someone down in uh, three, past Tuscaloosa, down in Aliceville last week. It's three and a half hours down there, three and a half hours back. And so as we're driving, she says, what do you, what do you want to listen? Do you want to listen to something? I said, find something on Romans 5. I am stuck. <laughs> Romans 8, verse 5 through 8. So we listened to several lessons on this. And one of the problems was this very thing. Now you have the power to keep the law. That's what God has given. And I have a problem with, some problems with that because, number one, if you're honest, it leads to discouragement in your own life. If you say, I'm a Christian, I have the power of God in me, I have the Spirit, but I'm not living up to the law. And so you become discouraged and maybe even depressed that I cannot, I still cannot do this. Something must be wrong with me because God's Spirit is in me, but it's not working. Or not working as well as I think it should. And so it could lead to some hypocrisy where I pretend that it's working real well. I'm doing really well. I'm, I'm doing great. Yeah, God bless you. Say a lot of, you know, religious stuff. And, you know, everyone thinks you're wonderful. So that's another thing. Or a third thing that happens that says, and I heard a preacher say this, yes, we're given the power to keep the law, although we know not everyone does it perfectly. We, we know we can't do it perfectly. And I'm thinking, if I'm an atheist, this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, so you're saying 
You have the power of God in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. And you still can't keep the law. Your spirit is kind of weak. God's spirit is weak. R really? Wouldn't you say that if you're an atheist? That if you're claiming God's spirit in you and you're not living up to the law that you claim that you can do, that God's spirit must be pretty weak because I know some atheists who have never been unfaithful to their wives. They've never killed anyone. They don't steal. They're honest. They'll do anything for you. They're good people, better than some Christians. And they say, well, my spirit is better than your spirit. So you see the struggle I have when we're saying what this is saying is now you can live up to God's law. And it's what we have done with good intentions of wanting to live right lives. To live, I want to live right. We've turned the gospel into a me-centered gospel instead of a God-centered gospel. We've said, oh yeah, God has given me the spirit so that I can now Focus on myself, and I can live right. I can do all the right things. We've changed that, and we're going to see later on that living according to the flesh is this very thing instead of living according to the Spirit. The gospel is God-centered. And here's a hint. Any time that you turn it back onto yourself and, and talk about what I need to do to live up to a standard, you've, you've turned it into a, a me-centered gospel instead of a God-centered gospel. The absolute good news that God gives us is the good news is centered in what God did in initiating salvation, in continuing salvation in your life, and in completing salvation in your life. And of course, immediately some say, well, you're saying we don't do anything. Yes, get ahead, read verse 11, where it says, therefore, we have an obligation. We'll get there later. But we got to get this first, all right? Because that's the order that Paul wrote it in, all right? So yes, we do have an obligation. There is something we do, but when it centers on me, we've turned it into a me-centered gospel instead of this is what God is doing while I have this obligation, while I work with him. In the old kingdom, the old realm, the old dominion, we're ruled by these powers, these, these ruling authorities called sin, death, law, and wrath. They're, they're ruling our lives. They're directing our lives. And those in Christ, it says the old has gone, the, the new has come. Uh, sin, death, law, wrath no longer rule our lives. They're not our authorities anymore. They don't dominate us anymore. Not like they did in the old way. And so we have this old eon, this old paradigm, this old dimension, this old way of life. There's a lot of ways to maybe try to describe it that we can, we can term now living according to the flesh. And we have this new way, this new paradigm, this new dimension, this new life that we have that is called living according to the Spirit. And we've got we to gotta do some definitions. We've got to define some words here. What does all this mean? What do these words mean? And as I was doing this, I know, so I'm aggravating some of you right now. You don't want to go through the definition. So I looked up, I said, is there a word, is there a phobia for the fear of def definitions? <laughs> and I looked it up, and there's not that I can find, but there is a fear of long words. And if you have this phobia, just close your eyes. This is going to be frightening. This is the fear of long words. Hippopotamonstrosiquip. 
pedaliophobia. That's a true word. And it just means the fear of long words. So if you have this fear that ties to definitions, hang in there with me. You know, many times we use words that we just don't, we think other people understand. If you're married, you've, you've done this. You use words and you say something and you think she knows what you mean and he thinks you, and you don't. You're using same words but different interpretations in your mind. And this happens all the time in particular fields of study, uh, cultures, subcultures, different denominations. We, you can use these words and we're like, I'm not really sure what that person is saying. It's English, but I don't know what they're saying. And I find that, found this very disconcerting. It happened to me as, as I grew up. As we moved from the United States when I was seven to New Zealand. And the words and the phrases and everything, it's English, but it's not. And then we moved to Fiji, and I went through that again. And then we went, came back to the States for a year, and I was the oddball here for a year. And then I went back to Fiji, and the same thing happened. And then I moved to North Dakota, and believe me, that's another culture <laughs> up there. And I remember, and this has happened as an adult in recent history, and like in 2018, the last time I was in New Zealand, I'm with a bunch of Kiwis, and we're all talking, and, and I'm thinking I understand what's going on, and someone says something, and they all just start laughing. And I'm like, what's so funny? I mean, I missed it. I missed the wording, the, the phrase, the whatever. And they thought I understood, and I didn't understand. And that's what it happens when we read through these passages and we assume, well, you know what a living corner of the flesh is. You know what a living corner of the spirit is. And we just go and some of you are just kind of left behind and you're a little embarrassed to say anything. So you drift off to back to Taviuni and have a good time there while we're talking about these things that you can't understand. George Orwell in his book 1984 said this, if thoughts corrupt language, language also corrupts thoughts. And that's true. If we use words in the wrong way, or if I'm assuming you understand my meaning, then I'm going to corrupt just the way you think. And so it's important that we have these definitions. We're going to define three words that's going to help us in, the, in this whole, whole chapter, okay? And I'm going to make them as simple as I can, but I have, to, I have to use words to do that. This first one is flesh. The Greek word is sarx, okay? It's written, that's the word that Paul wrote. And so only the older translations use the word flesh. The newer translations will use things like uh, carnal nature, sinful man, sinful nature, as we read a moment ago. And some of these will reflect the, the theology, the beliefs of the translators, and I, I don't know how you can do otherwise, but some people believe that people are born into sin. They are sinful, a baby, a, a brand new baby is sinful, just by being born and so you get this sinful nature this carnal nature and so they they wrap this word sarks into that fundamentally though it means this it just means it means your physical flesh and blood it, it means it's 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 not really the body that's another word but it means flesh and blood and all the functioning things that, that the feelings, the emotions that are tied into flesh and blood. And so you have emotions, you have uh, fe feelings. And so Paul expanded this word 
uh, that has to do with all our needs. Okay, my flesh and blood has needs. I need to eat. I need to drink. Uh, I, I need to sleep. Okay, we have these physical needs. And so it quickly, though, moves to this word of craving selfish desires. I want to gratify myself. I have these physical needs. I have these emotional needs. And I crave to, for you to feel. I have the emotional need to be loved. We all have the emotional need to be loved, and then we sometimes look for illegitimate ways, wrong ways, to feel that need of love. That's, that's the flesh. And so I define it, this is my own personal definition of Sark's when I think of it, is selfish, self-centered living, a me-centered life, I'm responding to how I feel and uh, my needs and my wants and my desires, my comforts, my feelings, my ambitions, my money, my home, my family, my fun, my future. And that's all wrapped up in the very first sin where the serpent said to Eve, uh, you, can, you, you can be like God. And that's really what this is all about. It's, it's a life where I have my own personal universe and everything revolves around me. I'm only thinking about myself. I'm a little God and I'm surrounded, I, I surround me with things and do not respect this little God. Do not disrespect me. Do not treat me unfairly. Do not hurt me physically or emotionally. Life is centered in me. And even when I help you, I want to have a win-win situation, right? I never want to have a lose-win situation. And I have to decide it's going to be a win-lose situation. That's the flesh. It's centered. Life is centered around me. And I think as we read through the scriptures, we... In our, in our, like this passage we just read, it's almost like this, there's a, a nature in us that's down there and he's just ready to grab us and we just can't control him. I mean, I, I can't help myself. I couldn't do it. I, I just, I couldn't help myself. You've heard, you've said that. Uh, the devil made me do it. No, the Bible says you decided to do it. You followed your own flesh, your own desires, your own wants. You surrounded yourself with just what I want, and you told everyone else, I'm God as far as you're concerned, and you serve me. You honor me. That's the flesh. Our problem is when we have two gods in separate universes and they come together, what happens to the little gods? They clash. It happens in marriage all the time. It happens in relationships all the time. They clash, and the result is death. Not dead fall down, but death in that relationship, death in, in the, what we say, how we treat people. That's the flesh. That's the flesh. So let's look at the second word, spirit. Panevma is the Greek word. And it is 
it's, we, we look, as I said before, is it capital S or little s? Is it Holy Spirit or is it man's spirit? And let me let you know, as you read the scripture, most of the time, I would say 95% of the time, you can probably figure that out. You don't have to have a degree in Bible or anything else. You just have to have a brain. Read it, you'll figure it out. There's a few times it's like, well, it might mean both. Well, it might, maybe so, all right? So just read it. But the word itself means breeze. And I try, I looked this up, I thought, well, maybe it means a, like a, a strong wind, like a hurricane. It doesn't. It means a gentle blast of air. It means a breath. It means wind. It, it means spirit. It means the energy or the power that's within a human body that causes us to live. The spirit apart from the body is dead. We know that. And so we have the spirit that causes us to think and to will and to de decide and to be rational. And so John 4 says God is spirit. God is this breath, this air, this breeze, this power, this strength that causes us to think and act and will and decide. So he says live according to the, we could say it this way, the breath of God. Live according to the Holy Spirit of holy will, of holy rationality, of holy decision making, uh, of, of found in the holy scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Do I have that? Yeah. All scripture is God-breathed, the NIV says. Some of your translations say inspired. Here's an interesting thing. I, at least that's interesting to me. Is Paul made up a word here? This is not found in any other place in all the writings of Greeks everywhere. Paul made up a word. He said all scripture is God. He used the word God. And he used this word, pnevma, put them together, and it's God's breath. All scripture is God's, God breathing out. And it made me think, how close do you have to be to someone to smell their breath? <laughs> and most of us are like, mm, you need a mint? <laughs> but there's some people you want to be in their breath. You love someone, someone you love, someone you're close to. You don't mind being in their breath. Uh, we're all freaked out right now with our mask on. But we, someone we love, the sweet smell of their breath. And Julie and I have this agreement that goes back 40 years. If my breath offends you, let me know. <laughs> so I don't offend someone else. But you, want, but you only come within the breath of people that you love. And so here's God's breath. Do you love God's breath? The sweet smell of God's breath is His holy word, His, his scriptures. And it, it, it's, a, it's something we can't really describe either. I mean, it's like, tell me what a spirit looks like. Knowing, I've asked that question. No one knows. We kind of get this idea of, oh my goodness, we have gone. We'll speed it up. But we do get this idea of the spirit. It's just me in this body, and if it comes out, you, it'll be transparent, but you can see me, but I'm still bald head, good-looking guy, you know, that comes out, you know. Don't we? But we don't, do we know, when the spirit comes, does it expand? What is it? I don't know. 
What does power look like? I don't know what power looks like. Now, I know the results of spirit, and I know the results of power. All right, we can see that. John's, uh, G, uh, John said that in John chapter 3, where he says, Jesus is talking. He says, you can't, you can't see the, the, um, uh, you can't see the air, but you see the effects of it. You see what it's doing. And so this is the way the spirit is, too. And so I define it this way. It's being selfish. It's being God-centered. It's our lives being transformed so that others, uh, so we're centering our lives around God and not the flesh, not myself. I center around God, his word, his breath. That's where I center my life. Let me do it quick, very quickly. The third word we have to look at before we can really get into this passage is the word mind. And I'm going to fly through this. But you'll get it. There's three words. You know, we're reading in English, it says mind. It says mind. It says mind. There's three different words, and they mean three different, slightly different things that helps us. The first one is um, this word noose. And it, it's what initiates the thoughts. It's not the brain. It's almost the brain. But it's not the brain. But it's what this physical organ called the brain does, begins, and initiates. It gathers information. It's the beginning of thoughts and attitudes. And it's what we see in 725 where it says, With a mind, I am a slave to God's law. With this noose, I am with, when I think about it, I'm a slave to God's law. This leads us to begin to process it, to better understand it, to reflect on it. And it's a combination of that word. It's dia, 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 dia. Noia, noia is the same as noose, all right? And it, it means thoroughly noosing, all right? Thoroughly thinking. It's processing. So you got the thought, it's in your mind, now you're processing. Just like all of you are doing right now. You're really with me right now. You got a thought, now you're starting to think about it. You're processing it, you're reflecting it. And it leads you at that point to this word that's used four times in this passage, five times in the English word, phronia, which means now this is the bent of your life, the, your worldview, the, your, the directions of your life. So very simple, it's this. You think of something, you, you process it, you consider it, and it becomes the way you live. All right? And that's what this is talking about. This is the way you live. Have the mind of the spirit, the mind of the flesh. It's the way I'm thinking that it's my life. This is my character now. 725 says, in my brain, in my initial thoughts, when I think about it for half a second, I'm a slave to God's law. Man, I think about it, I read it, and I go, yes, that's what I want to do. But then in these verses, in verses 5 through 8, it says, but now that I've thought about it and processed it, this is my way of life. I, it, I, I've become solid in my thinking. We use words like that. And this is the way my life, my character is going to go. In 5 through 11, Paul is, in, in uh, verses 5 through 11, Paul is contrasting between the flesh and the spirit, the me-centered life and the God-centered life. And, and we're such in a hurry to make the application that we, we want to jump there, draw conclusions in these two dimensions. And, and he's not telling you to draw conclusions yet. He's just saying this is a way you're either... Your, the bent of your life is toward yourself and what you want to do, or the bent of your life is toward God and what he wants you to do. Let's, let's just close by reading a, a very um, 
a, a paraphrase that I've struggled with that I might change, okay? But I think it will help us kind of tie this all together and we'll continue next, our next time together. I'm backing up to verse 4 to get in the context. The whole purpose of this was so that you could stand in the courtroom of justice and by God himself be declared not only acquitted, but right with God, thus measuring up to the law's perfect standard. This is granted to those whose day-by-day walk through life is no longer in human self-centered living, but is in a day-by-day life centered in God's spirit. Indeed, those who are wrapped up in self-centered living can only see life centered around themselves. They are gods in their own little universe. But those who look outward to the Spirit, who are shaped by the breath, the Word of God, have a worldview bent toward Him and see things in the clear light of what the Spirit desires. For those whose mindset is centered in me, death. But those who are swayed and bent by the gentle breath of God's Spirit, life and peace. I know that's where you want to go. I've never met a selfish person who knew they were selfish. That was a happy person. And so God calls us into a life. He says, look, I want you to have life, and I want you to have peace. And I'm going to breathe out how to do it. Just get close to me. Smell my breath, God says, and it's life and peace. God bless us all. Thank you.